Manufacturers are hiring and will need to fill 4.6 million American jobs over the next decade. As the workforce and education partner of the National Association of Manufacturers, the Manufacturing Institute is committed to building the modern manufacturing workforce and to closing the gender gap in the industry. The Institute's STEP Women's Initiative is working with Women Rule to promote the exciting opportunities for women in modern manufacturing. Learn more at themanufacturinginstitute.org. When people say, what are your hobbies? I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure. It's not the hobby portion of my life. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Susan Tynan, the founder and CEO of FrameBridge, a direct-to-consumer online framing startup that has raised a remarkable $67.1 million in funding since its inception in 2014. I sat down with her on stage at the Manufacturing Institute's Step Ahead Initiative, and we're bringing you that conversation as a special bonus episode of Women Rule. Before starting her own company, Tyan worked at Living Social, and before that, was a business consultant and a staffer in the Obama administration. She told us about what it's like to be a professional woman pitching to mostly wealthy, white male investors, getting over the hump and creating your own business, and her advice for entrepreneurs. Sorry, it's a basic one, but it is trust your gut because I I think the more complex my business has gotten, the more stakeholders there are, the more voices I hear. Trusting my gut is, is essential. We'll be back next week with another new episode. But first, here's my conversation with FrameBridge founder and CEO, Susan Tynan. You were a management consultant. You did several different jobs uh, before landing at Living Social. Talk a little bit about that process of kind of the beginning of your career. Sure. So I started as a consultant um, at Accenture and um, had a few clients, one of whom was the U.S. Postal Service. Um, so I spent time um, in processing and distribution centers. Very which was, glamorous. Yes, which was great, but but it's important for me to look back on that time because my career did not seem linear while I was going through it, but then in hindsight, so many of the experiences along the way were critical to being able to do what I'm doing now, which is where I want to be. So started as a management consultant, went back to business school, and then um, sort of fortuitously got a job um, working at a, a startup that was in financial services. Really got the bug of loving just uh, to, to be part of a high growth young business. Um, realized I loved that, but realized I truly am a consumer person. So sort of learned that, but learned a lot of skills and then went on um, to work in a cons- another consumer tech startup. And so I guess the path now makes a little more sense. At that point, um, Washington, as you know, it was an exciting time, and President Obama had just taken office, and I had the opportunity to go work at the budget office, which I did, which was such an honor and privilege and such hard work, and so I spent some time there, and then while I was there, I found myself itching again for that sort of high-growth, high-energy startup world, and I had some friends who had started a business called Living Social, which, for those of you, I I don't know if you're familiar with the company Groupon, it ultimately sold to Groupon. I just couldn't help myself. They just were having so much fun. They were growing so fast. I wanted to be part of it, worked for them, and during that time, 
started thinking about uh, starting my own business, but didn't get there yet. Wound up joining another startup um, leading product, so leading actually what the features of the app would be for, for a taxi app company that actually predated Uber. Well, let's talk about your time in government, because we're in Washington. Yes. Um, that had to be very different than, I mean, you go from the startup world, you're, you know, everybody, you know, Washington's famous for not getting anything done. Right. Were you frustrated by how slow government operates at times? Yes. It was certainly a lot of hard work in a great way. It felt purposeful. I remember truly a scene of being hiding in the restroom of a restaurant working on my BlackBerry, which that's like your life, I'm sure, all the time. Yeah. But now it's an iPhone. But um, but so it was working all the time. But I remember um, feeling often like I was running into brick walls just because most of those walls are there for a reason, but you know there are regulatory reasons they're there. There, there, there are reasons they're there, but I, I still felt like we would come up with great ideas and it was so hard to get them done. That being said, I was surrounded by very talented people and found that very, very energizing. And I certainly learned things that were essential to my career later. Um, you can only get so many things done. So really choosing your priorities carefully. And that's something I am trying to continuously remind myself in my current role where everything's a priority that, that really you can only, you can only fight so many battles. So really choosing them carefully and really uh, like what it would take to get something done require just, just sort of obsessive execution. I know those of you who work in manufacturing, I know you know this, but it's really, it's like the daily rigor um, in order to, to do something great. You need that daily rigor. What attracted you to being in that startup environment? Again, being surrounded by smart people who believe they could do anything. I think there's a little bit of delusion or like there's a little bit in people who think they can create something that hasn't cre been created before, but that's fun. I think the speed, when I went back into startup world and at this time in a very high growth uh, startup after the White House, I remember thinking like, wow, the stakes are different, meaning we can make some mistakes. Right. We can make mistakes, and so actually speed matters most. And so that was that was a shift, and it took me a while to adapt to the new environment. Well, there have been a lot of firsts over the last year with more women in Congress, women making progress in leadership roles in a lot of different industries. But there really aren't a lot of women who have started startups and are no. in that in doing what you are doing. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, it takes. Well, I'll go to the delusion part because I was going to say it takes nerve and I, and I think there are plenty of courageous women. I think there are a lot of reasons. One, it does, you have to set yourself up for some unpleasantness. There's a lot of rejection. I think we talk a lot about um, why women don't run for office different this year, but why they don't. Um, and, I, and I've heard that is that, well, you have, to, you have to sort of know the odds are stacked against you and be up for a lot of unpleasantness. And I think it's a little bit different when you're raising um, funds. People aren't attacking you personally, thankfully, but they are attacking your idea. And so, you know, a hundred people at least are going to tell you no before anyone tells you yes. And so that is a, you're going to get a lot of rejection. And so um, you have to sign up for that. I do think, of course, the networks are not well established when, when I've raised a lot of venture capital money and, you know, you, it is, predominantly white men. It just is, and they're even of a certain age, and you sort of feel like you don't have it, that some people are having an easier handoff mm -hmm. than you are, or, or someone's pulling you up, and no one is there to pull you up. You just have to go keep putting yourself out there for people. So I think that that deters some women. I think it's changing, though. We had um, 
two women recently, women a decade younger than me, just reached unicorn status, which is when their company is worth a billion dollars. And so it was Rent the Runway and Glossier, which is a makeup company. But it's really cool to see. And I think for the younger women in my office to see that, it's terrific. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll change. I think women don't pursue it because the networks weren't well established. They didn't see people. You have to put yourself up for a lot of rejection. And it's also, to the delusion point, it's not... It is not the most secure way, if you're responsible for your family, I am, it's not the most secure way to make a living. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I was reading about your career trajectory. You were involved in revi revitalizing the coupon market that was Living yes. Social, you know, what became Groupon, right? Deals. Uh, I remember my mom cutting coupons, you know, before going to the grocery store, but a pretty mature market, I think most people would say. <laughs> and now you've built- It was built really sort of revitalizing the yellow pages, honestly. Right. And, and now you, you, you've built a business around upending another market, picture frames. Yes. Did you ever wonder if it was kind of quote unquote, a big enough idea? Yeah. So, well, certainly all of the people I pitched wondered this. <laughs> so every time you, you want to start something, everyone says, well, why hasn't it been done before? Um, because I think the presumption is if it hasn't been done before, there are, there are so many smart people and ambitious people. If it hasn't been done before, there's a reason, a very good reason it hasn't been done before. So I think for our category, the reason was it just didn't look exciting enough for people. One, was the category big enough? And two, could you get people even to think about the category enough to engage with it? I think at the time, technology startups that were most interesting, and still today are, right, are ones that are in daily life, if it's transportation, if it's meal delivery even. Those are things people engage with several times a day. You can imagine how big the category could be. So yes, I think external people probably thought the category was not worthy of disruption or a new look, but, but we thought it was. And I personally thought it was because I did my research. I talked to hundreds of people about their experiences. Have you ever had something framed? And everybody had a similar experience about it being very expensive, sort of shockingly expensive and maybe, you know, a hassle and then they hadn't done it again. But when you went one layer deeper into what people framed, you heard the most amazing stories, these things about, you know, people's travels and achievements and hopes and joys in the best parts of their life. And so it was so obvious there was something special to this category. And it was so obvious truly a younger generation would appreciate it um, if it were delivered in a different way. What was your original pitch? I'm actually proud of the fact the original pitch is very similar to the business we created. Um, the original pitch was framing is too expensive, too confusing, and two trips to the frame store. So we want to change all that. And it's interesting because now we started online, five years online, we've just started opening some brick and mortar stores, but it's still only one trip to the frame store because we ship you back your finished product. Um, but but really, we, we set out to solve this problem, and that is... Um, the problem we're solving. And I think when I look back at any time we've sort of lost our way, it's when we've just lost focus on exactly the core of what we should be doing, which is we set out to solve this problem. And, and if anything, the only thing that has changed about my pitch or my description of the business is the significance it has in people's lives. Like truly, it, like it was really sort of a, it was a utility thing. It was like this, we should deliver this in a better way for people. And we talked only about sort of the features and benefits of the service we were providing and the quality of our materials and didn't actually talk about what people were using us for, which is really profound. It says celebrate or memorialize or commemorate or it's really like every day we get thousands of pieces of things that are people's proudest achievements. And so if anything, the only thing that has changed is I understand that it's a more important business. You mentioned uh, you were providing for a family. Yes. You had two young children when you launched Framebridge. Yes. 
We talk a lot about work-life balance on the podcast. Can we achieve it? Is it possible? How do you view that? And how did you kind of take on the, the decision to start and launch this business while having a family? Right. And this answer is um, will come with the caveat that I arrived about three minutes ago because of a child care <laughs> Handoff. Um, so <laughs> I like that dot 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 handoff. <laughs> um, you know, I I had got great advice from a friend from business school. She had kids before I did, and she said, "You just have to say, is it working right now? Like, if you look out into the future and try and project what will work when they're in middle school or when that you cannot. You know, so much will change in your career." So I started the business with a preschooler and a baby. I mean, that's a little crazy because um, it. The business has been really a, a an all-encompassing endeavor. My girls are proud of it. I think they see it. I, they're proud of what we're building. They understand it. It's a tangible business, which is really fun. Those of you who are building things, like it is, it's cool to to actually be building something, and so they understand that. So that's all been positive. I think probably a lot of women or a lot of primary uh, childcare providers would say this too that there's just not a lot of time for anything else. That's the one thing that's missing, right? When people always say, what are your hobbies? I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure. It's not the hobby portion of my life. I'll get back to hobbies, but right now it's really, it's just not what I'm up to. We'll be right back after this quick break. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Manufacturing Institute's STEP Women's Initiative. The Manufacturing Institute is the education and workforce partner of the National Association of Manufacturers and works every day to close the gender gap in manufacturing. It honors and promotes the role of women in the industry through the STEP, or Science, Technology, Engineering, and Production, Women's Initiative. The Manufacturing Institute is proud to work with Women Rule to connect more women with high-paying, rewarding careers in modern manufacturing. Today's episode was taped live at the 2019 Step Ahead Awards, honoring 130 women who are leaders in manufacturing. Visit themanufacturinginstitute.org to learn more. One of the biggest struggles that entrepreneurs have, but particularly women entrepreneurs, and you, you mentioned raising money. Yes. Is, is, is raising money. You know, this, this also plagues women in politics. It's one of the biggest reasons why women don't run for office is because they're going to have to go and ask their friends, their family, everybody else, you know, for money. You've done a, a lot of that. So yeah. talk to us about what's your strategy? What's the best way to do it? I, I noticed that myself in early stages of raising money, I was really buttoned up. I got a lot of feedback. You really know your numbers, which has killed me. I'm like, Clearly, I know my numbers. Thank you, <laughs> but um, but 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 I was really buttoned up, and I think I was I was presenting um, really on credibility. Like this is what we're going to do. This is what I can achieve. Um, this is how I will get it done in the near term. The generalization part is I found pitching against, and it is against because dollars are finite. So pitching against primarily men with really audacious ideas. They coming in with this little earnest plan to start a picture framing business was just not going to get people excited about what we were doing. And so I had to keep 
the earnestness, because I think, you know, I always say like investors who sign up with me have signed up for someone who's going to deliver what they say they're going to deliver is going to be totally upfront. Like that is the package, but also present the vision of what, you know, we're going to own this category. We're growing this category. We have amazing data to say 65% of the things people frame with us, they said they would not frame otherwise. So like this is new demand. And, and so to get people excited about what they were building with me had to be bigger than just, I swear I won't lose your money in the first 60 days. I think that even is, that is just advice I would give people is you obviously you have to know your numbers and be really buttoned up when you're selling something about your plans, but you also have to sell people on something bigger because everyone wants the only reason you would invest or invest in a candidate or invest in a person or a business idea is because you want to be part of something bigger. Do you have any rituals like things you do before you go into the big meeting? Oh, that's a good question. Well, this is a super embarrassing because I have not told anyone this. And as you, those are, it's a podcast. So you can't tell I'm not super glamorous, but I have, I started taking a, um, a photo of myself before like a pitch meeting, just being like, I want to just document some of these things have been really significant. And like, even it's only personal to me. I'm like, I just want to know these things happen. And through the history of Freebridge, we've had really challenging times. I know I'm sure many of you have had these these times. We had to consolidate factories and that was hard. We had to, you know, say goodbye to people who had been part of the team. That was a terrible time. And I took a picture of myself on that day. I was like, I just want to know like what this whole journey sort of document what it looks like. Um, like it's a it's a big effort. So that was one. But then of course I do like pump up stuff before a pitch. Like I listen to pump up music and What's your, what's it's your, like, what, oh, it's like, is it Lady Gaga? What's your, <laughs> see ya. Yeah. Um, um, Eminem, you know, I like it. I like it. <laughs> you alluded earlier to the fact that a lot of these pitches are happening with white men. Yeah. Uh, who are the vast majority of funders of companies, uh, you know, that are seeding companies. I imagine that most of them aren't framing a lot of things necessarily. Was it hard to convince them or was it, you know, oh, well, my wife would use this or my secretary or whatever. I mean, was that yes. a hard kind of thing to get over? So in the beginning, two reasons it was difficult. One, it's all men, so they may not have been the purchaser or just aware of the category. So they would have, they may have asked um, their wife or they may just have not believed the category was a thing is one. And then two, they're extremely affluent. That is why they're in their position. And so there was a lot of like, well, my decorator would do this. Like, I don't even understand. And so there was like a little bit of a out of sync there. What became very satisfying is in later rounds of funding and later conversations when people have interacted, where people say, oh my gosh, like I was at, came to my condo building and I saw that there are all these frame bridge boxes there. Or when people actually were like, I don't know, I asked people on the way in and they told me they knew it. And so then, so that became, when there's something real, when you're building something real and people have de have interacted with it, that's very satisfying. So let's talk about uh, FrameBridge. So you started it, you had the idea, you're raising money. What was your biggest challenge? Yeah, it's always supply and demand. So like it is always making sure we are, you know, we, we sell to consumers every day. And so there is some variability in that, right? <laughs> and we have a huge holiday peak season. And so forecasting and preparing for that is always something on my mind. I think we've gotten better at it. So that's less sort of, well, it's always acute. Um, so that's always on my mind. And then I think, you know, there have been some times in company history where we've had a backlog. We've got a surge in demand and we're not ready for it. And that feels in the moment really terrifying. But you really, you learn a lot from it and grow stronger out of it. 
Right, because I think originally I was reading a, a story about the company and it wasn't all smooth sailing, right? Uh, there was a moment when it almost like crashed and burned right yeah. out of the gate. Tell yes. us about that. So it's funny, it's, we're, we'll come up on the anniversary of Father's Day. It was a Father's Day promotion um, our first year. Um, so we came up with some sort of clever Father's Day promotion that went really well and um, required sort of additional custom work. And we had not invested in the system to support it before we launched it, and it did really well. And then we found ourselves slipping into a backlog that was really significant. And, and that was very scary because it was two things. It was one, like, we have customer orders. We must resolve this. But then sort of longer term, does this mean this business can't scale? Like, are, there, are we really actually seeing? There was a reason people didn't do this business. <laughs> In hindsight, the amazing part about it was it was really it, it, the aftermath of it was July and August, where truly the entire team, it didn't matter what your function was, was in our first um, warehouse, in our first facility, working Saturdays and Sundays, morning, noon, and night through the summer to hire the right team and to, to get us going for the future. So it was really, I mean, in hindsight, it was really obviously a galvanizing time. Talk about the culture of Framebridge. Uh, that's something, you know, I think for all companies, we're all focused on trying to figure out, you know, how do you keep, retain, grow leaders? Uh, how do you think about that? Um, you know, we try and have a culture where we all want to win, but um, we all want to win in the same way. And we talk a lot about, you know, I'm sure you all know this expression, you know, you're playing for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. And so as long as we're playing for Framebridge, it's great to be competitive. And, and um, but but it, it sort of together, I think you have to be driven by some form of excellence, I think, to be compatible with us. Um, our number one company value is show pride. And that's because that's why people are framing with us, right? What's a piece of advice that you might have for the women in this audience who are interested in starting their own company or taking on a new project? I, I mean, it's trust your gut. It's trust your gut. Um, and, and know that you know enough to do. what. If, if you're in the position where you're actually considering it, you know what to do. You know you can get it done. So Framebridge has been very successful. You mentioned that you recently opened your first brick and mortar. Yes. Did you ever think you would have actual stores? Uh, we knew we would in some way interact in real life with people. We had done pop-ups and things like that. Um, and we had a funny thing happen where um, people would stop by our corporate office with art. <laughs> Just <laughs> and, a casual yes, meeting to like, like, you know, pick out colors. Actually, this is actually a corporate office, but... Hello, and, and we actually did. I'm proud of our That's company funny. culture that always someone would leap on the controller. You know, someone would leap up and help someone because they had wandered into our office. Um, but, but we knew, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, the, the category makes sense that people might want to look at things uh, in person or just hand over art to us rather than by mail. So, we, I mean, we, something we thought of. And then, um, and then we got ourselves actually really excited to give it a, a, a significant try. And we've been open four weeks and we tripled our projections. It's really exciting. It's working. So give us a projection in five years. What can we expect? Yeah. From you? So, so in five years, I would love it if when you have something great that happens to you or just a really awesome moment, um, you think about that you should free bridge it. That is really, that is my goal, is that people really, that we are associated with, with just highlights of people's lives. We are quickly running out of time, but before I let you go, I want to ask you for one piece of practical advice you give our attendees here. 
advice. Yes, generally. one piece of advice. One piece of advice. It is. It's trust your gut. It is. I, sorry, it's a basic one, but it is trust your gut because I, I think the more complex my business has gotten, the more stakeholders there are, the more voices I hear, and yet really sort of orienting to our purpose, trusting my gut is, is essential. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. The show is made in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866.